I'm Michelle Harvin, and welcome to Business 2020, Foresight Through Hindsight, a podcast of the Aspen Institute's Business and Society Program. In this podcast series, we take a fresh look at major events in business and society over the past two decades, from the WTO protests to 9-11, from Enron to Occupy Wall Street. These events may have left the front page, but they offer important lessons for business leaders in the decades ahead. Just over a decade ago, when the financial crisis was fresh upon us, the Chronicle of Higher Education ran an article titled, Will Higher Education Be the Next Bubble to Burst? Before long, lots of publications were asking the same question. The idea was that college had gotten so expensive that Americans would say enough to all the debt and opt out of college altogether. Tied to this was another idea, that those who majored in the humanities got even less out of the bargain because humanities didn't pay. In 2009, the New York Times ran the headline, In Tough Times, the Humanities Must Justify Their Worth. Today, we can say that that bubble didn't burst, but the questions didn't go away. Liberal arts degrees declined in prestige, and politicians spoke of skills gaps and a surplus of liberal arts majors. Folks, could make a lot more potentially with skilled manufacturing or the trades than they might with an art history degree. A decade later, the return on investment of a college education remains a flashpoint issue in our politics. It's time for those four-year colleges who have in universities who have taken lots and lots of federal money, it's time for them to be on the hook for outcomes. When the outbreak of COVID-19 in the U.S. emptied campuses this spring, the finances of many universities got even more precarious as people called for tuition adjustments. But in this episode, as we evaluate the path of higher education, we won't be looking at the crisis of affordability. Yes, if tuition keeps rising at four times the rate of inflation, enrollment will plummet, and that may be starting already. But even if tuition went away, college would still be an investment, if nothing else, of time. And as people start casting more and more doubt on the humanities and playing up the idea of the skills gap, it's important to ask what students should be learning. Should colleges offer less Pushkin and more Python, less Mozart and more matrix management? That's what we'll be focusing on today. So let's start with a stereotype of the college graduate whose English degree hasn't really prepared them to land a job. Do they exemplify the skills gap? Should they have learned to code instead? Here's Matthew Hora, assistant professor of adult and higher education at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. The idea of a skills gap by pointing solely to higher education and the educational system as the cause for hiring difficulties is it's really a, a piece of fiction um, and that's one of the reasons I hope that the idea um, dies a quick death but it's been in use since the 70s and so I anticipate it's going to be around for a long time. Matthew says the idea of a skills gap really picked up steam in the 80s when a series of reports raised a lot of questions about whether American education was adjusting to the rise of other countries like South Korea and Japan. There was a lot of angst and anxiety about whether, you know, graduates in the U.S. educational system were receiving the right skills or competitive skills. But Matthew says for many employers, 
The skills gap turns out to be rooted in a shortage of people with very specific abilities, like welding or machine operation, that often have nothing to do with higher education. But whether it's a job as a mechanic or a marketer, Matthew says there's also a reluctance to do everything necessary to attract people with pricier skills. People are very upfront saying we just don't offer wages that are high enough to attract applicants. There's the issue of geography. Some people don't want to live in certain areas. Matthew says employability is a lot more complicated than a mismatch of market and education. There's so many other factors involved in employment, such as the business cycle, hiring discrimination, whether or not in that specific geography where a student is located, are there jobs? Are there good jobs? If global competitiveness rankings are any indication, then the skills gap may be manageable. The United States has remained near the top in competitiveness, and unemployment rates for students with business or STEM degrees and students with humanities majors are no different. At the same time, business and STEM majors do earn a lot more money, at least for the first few years after finishing undergraduate. And this, says Lynn Perry Wooten, president of Simmons University, is driving a lot of opinions about what college is and isn't good for. I think people feel with the recession that it's important now that I'm spending a lot of money on this degree so that I can get a job, that I can earn a decent living, and I can get a job to help me pay back for student loans. And so people value the humanities, but the practicality has become a big concern with the recession. You're seeing a group of people who are graduating from colleges that can't afford to buy houses because they have student loans or do traditional things that my generation did. And so once again, the return on investment has to be important. So does this mean that a humanities major is making a short-sighted choice? Is it someone with their head in the clouds who's going to find themselves broke while their classmates get rich? Here's one perspective. My name is Pierre Denton. I am a uh, partner and the global general counsel of McKinsey. I joined McKinsey last year, uh, 2019, having spent uh, almost 30 years in different legal and business and academic uh, jobs. We didn't ask Pierre what he earns. We're not that nosy. But it's safe to say that he's doing all right. So did Pierre study business in college? I was an English major. I focused on poetry uh, in particular. But I would say in general, I studied uh, a lot of the liberal arts uh, subjects uh, that you'd be familiar with, philosophy, classics, history, music, art, literature, that type of thing. And he doesn't regret it. The study of the liberal arts and the humanities, you know, for me was fundamental uh, to my career in business and to the professional uh, life that I've led. I think that when you study the liberal arts, what you're really doing is you're tapping into uh, human wisdom uh, that is thousands of years old. Now, Pierre wouldn't deny that he later picked up more specialized skills. He got a law degree. But he still says the humanities were central to his career achievements. One of the things that the humanities offers you is it's the ability to think creatively and to leverage all sorts of different and, frankly, unconventional inputs uh, in the business goals and issues and problems that you're trying to advance or solve. You know, Thoreau says in Walden, man most always hits what he aims at. Therefore, though he should fail immediately, he ought aim at something high. 
you have to have some framework that allows you to think big, that allows you to think unconventionally, that allows you to attack problems in a, uh, in a way that is not cookie cutter. Lynn Perry Wooten, president of Simmons University, would agree with that. She majored in business as an undergraduate, and she came to Simmons from Cornell's business school, where she was a dean and professor. You might think she was all business, but a lot of her time is spent thinking about how to bring the humanities into her work. Growing up in Philadelphia, and my mother was a teacher, the humanities have always had a very important part of my life, and I think of Philadelphia kind of as the backdrop for learning about the humanities, everything from the Philadelphia Museum of Arts to the library system to the Natural Science Museum and the Franklin Institute. And so when I got to undergrad and then did my MBA at Duke and my PhD at Michigan, even though all of those degrees are in business, I always had the mindset to think about how do you bring the humanities into this learning space and then ultimately into my career as an educator. Even for events like orientation at business school, Lynn likes to choose readings outside the realm of textbooks or business articles. Recently, she says, I picked a fiction book with my faculty staff team called Behold the Dreamer. Behold the Dreamer is a tale about two families. One of them is an immigrant family from Africa. The other is a family that the dad works for Lehman's Brothers and it's during the financial crisis of 2008. We had discussions about that book, really discussions that you would normally see in a humanities class. Themes about the book, critical thinking, how do you make sense of life during a recession. So in Lynn, we see a business major drawing on the humanities. In Pierre, we see a humanities major acquiring business know-how, which reminds us we don't have to think about humanities in STEM or business as either or. College can offer both and, and maybe it should. Physics nerds should learn to read Shakespeare. Art history nerds should learn to use statistics. Here's Lynn again. From my work with the Aspen Institute, we know that the best education or the ideal optimal education is not what we call the barbell model. And the barbell model, the liberal arts sits in its corner and then business and engineering sit in its corner. But instead, what you call the double helix model. How do you consistently integrate liberal arts or liberal education pedagogy into the experiences of the business classroom? And likewise, how do you bring business education or the STEM into the experiences of the humanities and the social sciences? When Lynn mentions her work with the Aspen Institute, she's referring to convenings that the Business and Society program has arranged for undergraduate educators from business and the liberal arts. The talk at these meetings has been about how to create this blend. As the venture capitalist Paul Graham recently observed, behind the big startups in Silicon Valley, there's usually the type of thought you'd expect from a scholar rather than a business person. Pierre would say that's no coincidence. Business and business goals and achievements so much involve understanding people, understanding group dynamics, understanding the short, medium, long-term horizon that you're working with, understanding cultural differences, uh, understanding the importance of ideas and organization and thinking conceptually and being able to express yourself in a way that's persuasive and clear to people. Uh, those are all skills and concepts, to me, that arise from the humanities. So maybe the way to think about the skills gap, if it's even real, 
is to stop worrying about the ratio of poets to engineers and to start worrying about creating citizens who are more well-rounded. If you try to focus so much on business and so much on economics and so much on finance in a very targeted way, you might become very, very adept uh, in those fields. But what you're not going to do is is widen the aperture. You're not going to have all sorts of inputs that are really going to allow you to think about your life and your professional life, from my standpoint, in a broader, richer way. So what does it take to put a more well-rounded education, one that prepares students to be both better workers and better human beings, into practice? Lynn Wooten and Matthew Hora suggest that universities could make themselves both more connected to the workplace and less so. On the one hand, a liberal arts college shouldn't be expected to do the sort of worker training that vocational schools or businesses used to do. That should be the job of business, says Matthew. The investments in workplace training have been declining for the last couple of decades. And when we think about something like lifelong learning, which is a skill that almost every skills survey you see out there about the skills employers want, lifelong learning is always on there. Well, that is squarely in the arena of employers to be providing that. Similarly, Lynn Wooten wants society to step up more when it comes to funding vocational schools, which likewise have a mission separate from that of universities. All of us know how difficult is it now to find a plumber, a carpenter, or electrician. And so I would like to see more policy that focuses on the investment in vocational education. On the other hand, Matthew Hora also sees ways for universities to become more connected to the workplace, to narrow the divide between what Lin Wooten calls knowing and doing. I think that a lot of businesses, if they reached out and developed more solid relationships with colleges and universities, for instance, to develop internship programs, to maybe sit on their curriculum advisory boards, or to just brainstorm in general, how can they work together, these two sectors, to deal with problems that are of mutual interest. I think that's something that hopefully we'll see businesses do more often in the future. Of course, as we mentioned earlier, and no one denies, none of this is possible if affordability slips further out of reach. We can't avoid a higher ed crash if the cost of college gets out of control. But for anyone who does go to college, the humanities will still be a crucial complement to a business or STEM education, and vice versa they repay their investment. Here's Pierre. Beyond your professional success, quote unquote, uh, this is your life. Uh, You're going to be spending a lot of years uh, working uh, in the business world. And uh, what kind of person do you want to be? How, how do you want to uh, operate in that world? Do you want to be a, a more sort of one-track type of individual, or do you want to be somebody who has at your disposal a tremendous breadth of, of intellectual depth uh, that you can talk about with conviction because you've studied it, because you see it as relevant, because you understand how it applies to the problem-solving that you're doing in the business world? That is a definitional question, and there's no free lunch. There's no way to short-circuit that. And this question of curriculum is important for the rest of us, too, no matter what role we play in society. Here's Lynn Wooten. 
Often the thing that universities forget their role is developing citizens. That means citizens that support a democracy. That means citizens that give back to their community. And so developing those skills are important too. I now have to prepare a generation to live in an extremely diverse, boundaryless society. Before we were diverse, but we had boundaries, we had segregation. And so now it's how do you bring people together to be culturally intelligent? Just as important is the skill set to have civil conversations and disagree. That's especially relevant as the United States is convulsed by protests and a pandemic, and our divides can seem wider than ever. Business and STEM fields can keep our technical innovations going, but the humanities will help us keep sight of the big picture and, with any luck, promote tolerance and understanding. That will be crucial as Americans, and not just Americans, settle on divergent narratives. What do these new narratives mean for the decade ahead? We hope you'll join us for an exploration of that question on our next and final episode of Business 2020. I think digitalization is a very important strand in the future that everybody has to consider. And I think the future of democracy, even if all you're doing is a scenario about the bottom line, how we govern ourselves is going to be very important in the future. And we are being shaped by new stories and lack of trust in the old ones. So new storytelling is going to be very important. Looking at any story about the future is a fiction. We can create better stories. If we really take that on board that the story of the future is a fiction, we can create better fictions. And what's key about that is that the story we tell about the future shapes the present. So we can have a better present by having a better story about the future that shapes the present. Be sure to subscribe to Business 2020 on iTunes so you won't miss our next episode. And don't forget to leave a review. Follow the Business and Society program on Twitter at Aspen Biz Society for more information on the issues discussed in this episode. Business 2020 is hosted by me, Michelle Harvin, and written by senior producer Keith Schumann, with input from Felicia Davis, Jamie Betcher, and the Business and Society team. Recorded by Ben Eiler and Amina Akhtar, and edited by Jesse Krinsky. Special thanks to our guests this episode, Matthew Hora, Lynn Perry Wooten, and Pierre Genton. You can find detailed information on the music and sounds credit through the site page for this episode on the BSP website. Thanks for listening.